You'll find James toward the back of your Bible, right after Hebrews. As we get started in this little letter this morning, and we'll this will take us all the way up to Advent, and uh, Eric and Robert and I are excited about preaching through James. Some fascinating facts about James. Um, it was the first New Testament letter written, and so. Scholars date it between A.D. 44 and 49. So this is just 10, 12, 15 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So this is, this is fresh. You can imagine, um, you know, the older we get, the quicker 10 years goes by. So you can imagine that all that has happened is still fresh on the minds both of James and his readers. It was written, we believe, by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, lots of reasons why we think it was that James. I won't go into all of those, but uh, we're pretty confident that it was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And this James, as well as the other brothers and sisters of Jesus, did not originally believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And perhaps this is why Paul specifically mentions James in 1 Corinthians when Paul lists the number of people to whom Jesus personally appeared after the resurrection. And he, he specifically says, and he appeared to James. And so we wonder if at that point James began to believe. And now, James has a completely different relationship with Jesus. In verse 1 of this letter, uh, James does not, call, does not call himself the brother of Jesus. If I was the brother of Jesus, and I was writing a letter to somebody, I'd start with that. Hey, people, listen to me. I'm his brother. He doesn't even mention this. Instead, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ being uh, the Greek word for Messiah, his title. So think about this. As, just as we heard these amazing stories of Jesus getting the hearts of people and transforming them, listen to the transformation that happened in James, the brother of Jesus. In this one sentence, he equates his brother Jesus with God. James calls his brother Jesus Lord, in chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to call him the Lord of glory. James calls his brother Christ, the Messiah. This is the promised one. James, as this good, uh, faithful Jew, is calling his own brother the Messiah. And then James calls himself a servant, a slave of Jesus. Amazing, amazing. And I wonder, even I just want to stop right here, and I wonder if there's someone here this morning who is as skeptical about Jesus as James was about Jesus. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you're as skeptical about 
Jesus being God and, and the Messiah, uh, and a Lord, the Lord, as James was. And I wonder if today might be the day that you, like James, finally decide, no, this Jesus, this Jesus is God. He's Lord. He's my Messiah, my Savior, and I want to be his servant. I pray, and others in this room were praying that that would happen for one of you today. Amazing story. And this James, who once did not even believe his brother was the Messiah, became one of the prominent leaders of the church in Jerusalem in the years that followed the resurrection of Jesus. And this letter uh, that James writes is also unique in this way. This letter contains one command for about every two verses. Uh, in, in the Greek, the, the commands are in the imperative, the verbs are in the imperative mood. And there are 54 imperatives in 108 verses in this book. It's very unique among New Testament letters to have that kind of concentration of exhortations. And so that makes James one of the most practical, here's how to live books in the New Testament. Uh, we, we've been talking a lot about asking the question, so what? That's what James is about. You say you have faith, so what? Here's what it looks like. And it's also interesting Connected to that, there's little, if any, preaching of the gospel of Jesus in James. In fact, he only mentions the name of Jesus twice, although he says, he refers to Jesus a lot throughout the letter by calling him Lord, but he only mentions his name twice. And so it's very different than what we're used to from Paul, where Paul will tell us, uh, before he tells us what to do to live like Jesus, Paul reminds us of all that Jesus has done so that we might live like he lives. But James is doing the same thing here, but he's focusing on the part about what we do to live like Jesus. And remember, these folks are just 10, 12, 15 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so some of them may have heard him teach or preach, they may have seen him heal. They may have watched him die. They may have seen him after the resurrection. But regardless of whether they actually had any uh, personal contact with Jesus himself, assuredly, many of them, all of them, heard the apostles preach and teach about all that Jesus had done for them. And now they're scattered away from Jerusalem because... They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus as God, their faith in Jesus as Lord, their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so, for reasons we don't necessarily know, James doesn't seem to think that they need to be reminded about what or whom they believed in, but they need to be exhorted to live according to what they believe, to live like the one in whom they have believed. And there'll be more about that when we get to chapter 2. But, but this is what makes James a unique letter. And so the way I've been thinking about James is that we're going to learn from James 
what it looks like to be shaped by Jesus into the shape of Jesus. We're going to learn about what James pictures here as a Jesus-shaped life. If, if we were to be able to see the footprints that Jesus left in the sands he walked, they would look like these word pictures that James gives us over and over and over again in his letter. This, these are the footprints of Jesus. This is what it looks like to walk with him and like him. And so uh, we can be encouraged that Jesus, uh, James is writing to the very first Christians. That's what has fascinated me to think about this letter. The very first Christians, the very first letter we have written to them, to the church, is this one. Um, so, let's dive in, shall we? We're going to start with James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm also going to read, it's not in the bulletin, but I'm also going to read verse 12, uh, because it, it relates to, uh, to these first four verses. So would you stand with me and hear the word of the God who loves you and gave you this letter? James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 12, he says, Blessed, and this is the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount, so it can also be translated happy. Blessed, or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, uh, help us now as we begin our journey in James, help us to hear what you would have to say to us. Show us Jesus. Um, help us to trust him uh, even more because we've been with him in your word today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So right out of the chute, James is after us <laughs> with, some, with some pretty intense stuff about trials. What's, what is a trial? He, a trial in this letter is some kind of difficulty that causes you some level of pain or stress or struggle. And so James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. And I recognize that even as we jump into this, some of you right now are in the middle of a trial or multiple trials, and the pain is pretty intense. Some of you have recently come out of a trial or series of trials, and you're exhausted. And the truth is still that some of you may not be currently in a trial or currently coming out of a trial, but there is a trial coming. Sooner, later, there is a trial coming. 
you're going to enter into one, and you're not sure, perhaps, that you're ready for it. Now, why start this new sermon series with such gloom and doom, Pastor? Well, because that's where James starts. And he doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. He says when. Hard things happen. They will happen. And so remember, again, he's, been, he's writing to these Christian folks who have been run out of town for following Jesus as the Son of God, as their Lord, as their Messiah. And so we get clues throughout this letter about what the various trials they have experienced or are experiencing are happening in their lives. Uh, there's certainly persecution for their beliefs. He mentions that. He mentions physical illness. He mentions financial hardship. He mentions uh, social, social, uh, socioeconomic prejudice. And that's between Christians. And he mentions, again, between Christians, relational conflict. So there are all kinds of trials that these folks are experiencing. And James, as their former elder pastor, he loves them. He calls them my brothers and sisters. And he remembers their faces. He remembers their families. And he imagines what they're suffering and what they're going through. And he longs for them to continue to live as people who know Jesus and are known by Jesus wherever God has put them. And so... He exhorts them right here in the first of 54 commands in this letter, and he tells them what to do when the trials come. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Count here, James, means think about trials in a particular way and from a certain perspective. He says, I'm telling you, my dear brothers and sisters, you have to see your trials in a way that goes completely against the way you and the people around you typically see trials and troubles. He's, he says, when you encounter trials in your life, don't count it as a waste of time. Don't count it as a nuisance. Don't count it as it is what it is with a stoic whatever. Don't count it as God is out to get me or even worse, don't count it as God doesn't even think about me. Don't count it as some lesson you have to learn so that this bad stuff doesn't keep happening to you. Don't count it as those things. No, he, he exhorts them to, to see their trials in a counterculture, counterintuitive way. He says, count it as all joy. See the hard things that happen to you as occasions for happiness. That's crazy. That's just crazy. To my mind. So I asked Christine, my wife, Christine, what she thought James was saying here. And when I told her this morning that I was going to quote her, she said, oh, yes, because I am the expert on suffering and trials and how to, how to handle them well. No. But I knew here is someone who has suffered. And I wanted to know 
how does it feel for James and me, your pastor, to say, count it all joy, Christine, the next time you're racked in pain on the bed, the next time you're overwhelmed by all the, the needs of people in your family and life. Count it all joy. And this is what she said. Uh, Christine is an Excel spreadsheet guru. Uh-huh. Um, and so she put it in those categories, and some of you will appreciate this. She said, James is saying, put your trials in the credit column, not the debit column. That's profound. Put your trials in the credit column, not the debit column. Count your trials as credits given to you, not debits taken from you. Well, that doesn't help me with how crazy this sounds. Count my trials as credits, as something God's giving to me, not something that he's taking from me. That's crazy, James. I mean, what kind of pastor are you anyway, James? Who thinks that way? And James would say, the good shepherd, my brother Jesus. Because James is only applying what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount that we heard earlier. Listen, listen again to some of the things that Jesus said. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. That right there just captures it all, doesn't it? Happy are those who mourn. Jesus flips everything upside down. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy are those who are persecuted for doing what's right. Happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then Jesus says, just in case you wonder if happy is the right translation, he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. So Jesus and James, they're on the same page here. James is just applying what his brother preached. And Jesus and James are not telling us to enjoy the pain of trials but to see there's joy in the trial even when it causes us to be in pain. They're not saying be weirdos who like to be in pain. So how, James? How can I be happy when hard things happen? I've talked to Christine more about this as one who's suffered in various ways herself, especially with physical pain. I said, what do you, what do you think Jesus is, uh, James is getting at here? And she said, I paraphrase, she said, I, I think he's saying it has to do with where you fix your eyes. You have to lift your gaze above the pain, beyond the trial, to who God is and what he's up to. It's the only way, she said, that I can have hope to make it. You have to lift your gaze above the pain 
to who he is and what he's up to. James is saying that you can be, and this is even so hard for me to say because it sounds so crazy, you can be happy, you can be joyful when hard things happen by seeing something above and beyond the trial, by seeing that there's a person working out his purpose through this trial. Well, James doesn't mention a person, does he? He just says, uh, count it all joy when you meet various trials. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let's do. He doesn't talk about a person there. But there is a person behind it. He doesn't mention God in those verses. Now, he does in verse 12 later. He says that God has promised the crown of life to those who endure and who love him. But when James says that our faith is being tested, he's using a particular term that's it's a metallurgical term. It, it's you know, Metallurgy is the, the process of metal being made genuine where the impurities are taken out of it. You know, it comes to you in, in ore and uh, a catalyst and heat have to be added to kind of rid the, the metal of the impurities to strengthen its beauty and value. And so when James uses that term, he's assuming that if this is a metallurgical test, there must be a metallurgist doing it. Someone is doing this. Someone is applying the catalyst and using the heat on this metal to draw out the impurities and to purify and strengthen the metal. So there is a person working out his purpose through you, through this trial. But he focuses on what the purpose of the trial is, what, what it is that God is working to produce. So verse 3, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And I'm going to come back to faith in a little bit, but what is what is the product? What's he trying to produce? Steadfastness. Uh, another translation would be endurance. It's The Greek word literally means to remain under. It's someone who can hold up under. Um, so you almost imagine Atlas with the world on his shoulders. But um, someone who endures or has steadfastness is someone who can hold up under the weight. And I, I read that and I thought, oh, wait a minute, what, is, is that all? Just endurance? All these hard things happen so that I can just be happy to hang on? is what it feels like a little bit. So before you check out, I want you to listen to this. Listen to me. Listen to James. When Jesus and the apostles talk about steadfastness and endurance, they are not just talking about hanging in there. No, James is talking about the kind of endurance that the other apostles talk about, and it's the kind of endurance that only the spirit of Jesus can produce 
in his people. Paul described it this way. In fact, Paul prayed this for the church. Um, He said, this is in Colossians 1, Paul said, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be strengthened with all power. What kind of power? According to God's glorious might. For what? For all endurance. Same word that James is using. For all endurance and patience, he adds to it, with joy. So the kind of steadfastness or endurance that we're talking about here is the kind that only the glorious, mighty power of the resurrection spirit of God can produce in us. This is not just a hanging on. Although I would say, if you are hanging on, the spirit of God is at work in you. So I read that and I say, don't you want that? Don't you want to be strengthened with all the power of God's glorious resurrection might to endure and be patient with joy? Friends, if you belong to Jesus, then of course you want that. In the deepest recesses of your heart, you want that. And so when you read James saying, count it all joy because God has this purpose to test your faith so that you may have steadfastness, you say, yes, I want the steadfastness. I want that. And the reason you want that, friends, is because Jesus is in you. And that's who Jesus is. He is one who has endured with joy. You know these familiar verses from Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews encourages us. He says, let us run with endurance. There's that word again. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Remember what Christine said, where your eyes are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one perfecting our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured, there's the word again, the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus is in you. And that's why you long and I long for that kind of steadfastness and and endurance to be developed in me. To be developed in you. Paul said that he felt like he was a, a woman in the pangs of childbirth, longing for Christ to be formed in his people. That Jesus is in you. And James is saying that God's purpose for your trials is to perfect and complete what is lacking in you and in me until we look and live and endure with patience and joy more and more and more like Jesus did. That's what God's up to. That's the purpose of every trial. So friends, James is not only exhorting us to look above and beyond our trials to Uh, the person who has a purpose for these trials. But he's also exhorting us to look ahead to see the person he intends for us to become. 
a person who endures suffering with joy in order to love God and people like the person Jesus did and does. And it's an incremental process, James says. It's a bit by bit, day by day, trial by trial process because he says it's that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we are lacking in something, and so the work's not done. It's, it's, it's ongoing, little bit by little bit. So you may think, well, I've had a lot of trials, and I don't feel like I've grown a whole lot in endurance. Well, you have. It's just harder to see it up close. <laughs> I think of my dad uh, recovering from triple bypass surgery a, a couple of weeks ago, and he was a week in the ICU and a few days in the, back in the regular hospital. Now he's been at Siskin in the rehab hospital for a week. Um, and the progress, if you're up close to it, seems very, very slow. But it's actually amazing how far he's come. And guess what? It's because they keep putting him through trials. <laughs> Mr. Davis, wake up. Six o'clock in the morning. This man does not know what six o'clock in the morning looks like. Okay? Mr. Davis, let's go. You've got to eat breakfast and go to PT. And then after that, you've got OT. Ah. They put him through trial after trial after trial. And bit by bit by bit, he's able to do things that he couldn't do right out of surgery. It's incremental. And so James commands us. Um, one of the reasons he commands us, count it all joy, is because um, we don't. <laughs> and so he starts off with that first imperative. Count it all joy. Listen to me. Look. Look at the person. Look at the purpose. And then his second command comes in verse 3, where he says, or verse 4, let steadfastness have. That's a command. You must, Christian, let steadfastness have its full effect. You must cooperate with God in this process. You must. You must submit to his trials. Just like my dad has to submit to the, you know, they, they just keep saying, if you'll just do what we say, we're going to get you there. And so he does. And it hurts. But he does it. He lets PT and OT and speech therapy have their full effect, even though it's slow. And so James is saying to us, let it have its effect, let it have its full effect that one day you will be perfect and complete and you will lack nothing of what Jesus is in his heart and character that is yours. And so I ask myself, so how do I do that? How do I, how do I cooperate with that? How do I let steadfastness have its full effect? Well, it goes back to Remember what's being tested, your faith. 
And faith, oh, it's so hard. This word gets so corroded and corrupted with craziness. Um, faith is not just believing in belief. Faith is not this nebulous force or power out here that is getting strengthened and tested. Faith is about your relationship with God, with Jesus. It's, it's about your dependence on him. Your, your day-to-day communication with him. It's, it's about you and him. It's personal, moment by moment, holding to him and resting in the promise that he's holding you when you can't hold on to him anymore. It's, it's just, help me think about faith as just me and, and God, me and Christ, because his spirit lives in me, having this moment-by-moment moment relationship together. And the trial is meant to purify and strengthen that connection, that relationship that I have with him. So that I would know his good and gentle and lowly heart and readily submit to whatever process he has to purify and strengthen our relationship. Well, to close, um, I, I, I don't know any other way to illustrate it except to imperfectly tell you how I did this this week. And this doesn't, I, I just, I say imperfectly because if you, <laughs> you really knew what it looked like, you would, you would say, don't use that as an illustration. Um, but listen, um, through this passage this week, the Lord challenged me. He's, he's like, Jimmy, let's be real. You've had a lot of trials going on. Okay, a lot of trials. And I'm not saying I have any more than anybody else, but the truth is, I've got trials. You've got trials. Don't minimize the trials you have because you think someone else has more. Because he's using those in you. So he said, you know, you've got a lot, you've got a lot that's been going on the last few months. And so I, I thought, okay, then... What are you doing? How are you using this to test our relationship, to purify it and strengthen it, um, like fine gold? And then how are you, how are you using this for the, your purpose of making me more like Jesus in my endurance with patience and joy? And so what I did was I, I just took some time to um, I, I kind of put this in three categories, repent, believe, and follow Jesus. And so I just, in the repent category, my question was, what is this trial bringing, what are these trials bringing to the surface about my heart and about my relationship with Jesus? And it's not fun to look at that. <laughs> um because it wasn't all it wasn't all very encouraging the numbness the trying to find ways to be happy in something when hard things are happening but 
not in Jesus. Um, the the ignoring and, and not engaging Jesus in the middle, and my Father in the middle of all these things, just finding myself disconnected from him and just inside myself trying to hang on. All these different things. Um, finding ways to look for things that make me happy when hard things happen without looking at him. And then I had to say, well, this is how I handled this, Father. This is, and you know it? This is a mess. And then the next category is believe. What has God promised about who he is and what he's up to? Um, and so he receives my confession of all the dross that he knows is there because he's the one working to draw it out and draw it away. And he says, look at my son. I knew this about you, and I want you to see it, and I want you to see that I've done something about that. But not just you're forgiven, don't worry about it, but you're forgiven, but I have more for you than that. I have more for you. I, I, I want you to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, Jimmy. So, so I'm showing you these things that aren't good, that aren't pretty, but I'm promising you that I'm going to work to take them away because I love you and I have more for you. And so I was encouraged, I believe, by him to look again at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You want to talk about a trial, a trial that made him sweat drops of blood. There's Jesus in the garden. And Jesus is not denying the pain of the cross or the loss, but he himself is looking above and beyond the cross at the joy set before him, the joy of loving his father and executing the plan that they came up with together to save sinners like us. Because it was their joy to do it. And to look at him and remember, that's, that's Jesus. I'm his servant. He lives in me. And to look again at what he did and who he is, that he loves me and gave himself for me. And then to say, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and turn my focus back to him and stop, stop the numbness and the ignoring, uh, in my case, I'm saying this, stop the, oh, I'm too tired to go spend any time with God right now. What I need is to veg out in front of an Astros game. Well, Maybe. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I found myself doing is just, I'm too tired to talk to you, God. I'm too tired to 
read about you. I've just... And here's what I've sensed him getting at with me. Don't, I'm not asking you to come spend time with me to learn from me or to learn about me. I want you to learn me. I just want you to be with me. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for your patience in letting me tell you how God has worked out that is working out that passage in my life this week. Father, it's a lot. (laughs) Thank you for the encouragement, Father, that um, you're not asking us to pretend like it doesn't hurt when we go through trials. That's not at all what you're asking. You're not asking us to be happy that we hurt, but to be happy that it's not for nothing. To be happy that one with nail-scarred hands is at work in us through the trial. So we cry out to you and beg you, Spirit of Jesus, Help us to lift our eyes above the trials and to see the person who has a purpose and to see the person who loved us and gave himself for us. Thanks be to God. In Christ's name I pray, amen.